it feels like there won't be enough time to get together before the Day of Judgment, but that's not true. We've been working hard now for about a month, and we just need to make sure that the final preparations are in place. There are two things that are going to happen in a few days when Rosh Hashanah begins. Number one and most important, we are going to celebrate God's coronation. We're going to celebrate God's being crowned king over the universe. And that is the central and most important theme of Rosh Hashanah. By the way, there will also be a judgment on each of us. And in that judgment, God will decide life and death and health and wealth and time and teachers and peace. All of the things that we need for the next year are going to be decided on Rosh Hashanah as well. Now, it would be really nice if we could just have fun and celebrate and relax and enjoy the coronation because we're really supposed to be very happy on Rosh Hashanah. We don't even eat spicy things on Rosh Hashanah, sour things on Rosh Hashanah because we are so enthusiastic about the coronation that nothing shouldn't be sweet. But it's hard to keep our heads clear enough to concentrate on the coronation when we know that during that 48-hour period, there's also a judgment. Uh, what it means by coronation is that on Rosh Hashanah, God redeclares that He is the King of the universe and we affirm that he is the king by accepting upon ourselves his rule. Just like if a, if a king of flesh and blood affirmed his kingship, yeah, he, he decided to affirm that he was the king, so he actually becomes the king through the affirmation of his subjects that we will follow you. So on Rosh Hashanah, he, he is involved in a coronation and we are celebrants at his party, celebrating that he's in charge and that we accept his rule upon us. You know that uh, on Rosh Hashanah you're not allowed to cry. You're not allowed to be sad. You certainly can't start confessing sins. So why is this? Because if you would go to somebody's birthday party, it's not nice to cry at their party. Yeah? You don't start confessing your sins because you're not supposed to be involved in yourself on Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, you're supposed to be celebrating the fact that he's king. So... That's ideally what we're supposed to be doing on Rosh Hashanah, is this coronation. The question is, how do you do it when you know that your life is at stake? That's the problem that we want to solve today. Unless it's tears of joy, it's a sore. You are not allowed... Right, you, know, you have... You don't have so they're crying tears of joy, but you are not allowed to be sad on Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, this is his party. Yeah. They're geared to bring tears. They're, they're 
So the, 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 her question is, the, the prayers seem like they're very awe-inspiring and they could make someone very afraid. Leave certain parts of the prayer. The reason for that is because Judaism could have been renamed reality therapy. And there are two things that are going on in Rosh Hashanah. The author of the Nisan Tokef was acutely aware that there was a din going on in Rosh Hashanah. And we have to be aware also. With that awareness, we can't get trapped in our own self-obsession. We have to completely give ourselves over to the simcha of the fact that he's king. How do you do it? So there's a solution. Now, I will offer warning before I present this prescription that while it is fairly easy for me to describe what you have to do, this is not going to be easy to do. However, anyone who heard the prescription I'm going to give now, when I gave it last year or the year before, will tell you it works. It can be done. So don't feel that it's beyond your reach. You can do it. It's just going to be a stretch. We'll start with a theoretical introduction and we'll work through this theoretical introduction towards the very, very, very concrete and practical what to do on Rosh Hashanah in order to be able to concentrate on the coronation. We'll start with three apparent contradictions. Point number one. The Mishnah in Masech Rosh Hashanah, Daf Tetzayin Amad Aleph, 16a, reads as follows. It says on Rosh Hashanah, Kol Bai Olam, all of the people on the planet, Ovrim Lefanov, they pass in front of God, Kebnei Maron. What is this thing, Kebnei Maron? What is this thing? So the, the Meforshim, they give three different explanations. Perhaps it's like sheep that are passing through uh, in a narrow path so that you can count them to see which is the tenth sheep. So you can always mark the tenth sheep as miser, as, as something that should be given over for holy purposes. There's another explanation. Maybe it's like King Solomon's warriors when they would go out to battle that they would march out to battle single file, one at a time. Or there's another explanation that maybe it's like people who are going up steps on the side of a cliff. And the cliff is so narrow that you can't walk two and two. You have to walk one at a time. But according to all the explanations, what it means that we appear on Rosh Hashanah, what that means is, it means on Rosh Hashanah, we are judged totally alone as individuals, one at a time. That God looks at me and me alone during the judgment and at nobody else. So says the Mishnah Rosh Hashanah. That's on page 16a. Now, if you'll just lift the folio page and just flip over two pages and you get to Masech the Rosh Hashanah, page 18a, two pages later... The Gemara explains that even though we're judged single file, 
Af al pikain, even so, kulan miskarin beskira echos. When the judgment takes place, we are all judged in one glance, all together. Okay, now, what is it? Are we judged in one glance together as a community? Or are we judged as single individuals? Which one? The Mishnah says one. The Gemara says the exact opposite. And the Gemara is commenting on that Mishnah. So what does the Gemara mean? Question number one. Are we judged as individuals or as a community? Question number two. There's going to be a judgment on Rosh Hashanah and everything depends on that judgment. The Mephorshim tell us that God judges us by Asher Hu Sham. God judges us in whatever state we're in on Rosh Hashanah. Which means it doesn't make a difference who I have been right up until Rosh Hashanah begins. That's irrelevant. And God will even ignore who I'm going to be in the future. If I'm going to blow it in the future, He doesn't care. If I can hold it together... For the judgment on Rosh Hashanah, I'm set. Okay. Now the problem is the Rosh Hashanah is 48 hours long. So to hold it together for 48 hours is not the easiest thing in the world. Okay. The good news is the judgment only lasts a split second. If you could hear what the judgment sounds like on Rosh Hashanah, is you're walking through Rosh Hashanah, everything's going fine, and then suddenly you would hear... That's it. Then it's over. He took the spiritual x-ray, he sees who you are... The future is set, and there's nothing more to discuss. Now, wouldn't it be nice to know when that is going to happen? Yes? So, for $100, I... No. Uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of people have obviously no idea when this takes place. However, there was a tradition among the Jews about exactly when the judgment took place. And the tradition has been passed down, and there are people who know. For instance, one of those people was the Yaros Dvash. He knew. And he even wrote down exactly when the judgment happens. Another one of those people was Revisrael Salanter, who also knew exactly when the judgment took place. Who also wrote down when it took place. And of course, not coincidentally, they both point to the exact same moment. And if I would tell you, then you would know exactly when the judgment is going to take place. <laughs> they both write that the judgment takes place during the shofar blast. Okay, now. Okay, so when the shofar would have been blown. On Shabbos, when the shofar would have been blown. Now, the, this is not so helpful because there's a number of times when we blow the shofar. And you don't know which blast is happening and it's only a split second. But we've narrowed it down. We're not talking about hours and hours and hours here. Yeah? It, is, it can only happen when the shofar is being blown or when it's supposed to be blown. So you're pretty much set. Okay, now. The problem is 
And this is where the second question comes. We know that the blowing of the shofar is the moment of pure din, of pure judgment. What's bothersome is a medrash in Vaikorabo. The medrash there reads as follows. This is Chav Tes Gimel. It says, How fortunate are the people who know true ah. Truah is one of the shofar blasts. How fortunate the people who know the Truah. So the Medrash says, what do you mean how fortunate the people who know the Truah? Meaning how fortunate are the Jews who know how to blast the shofar with the Truah? The Medrash says, what are you talking about? And the Gentiles don't know how to blow a shofar? Anyone can blow a shofar. The Medrash says, yes. But the Jews know how to please their creator with the truah. The truth is, the language of, if you would translate literally what the Midrash says, it says the Jews know how to seduce their creator with the sound of the truah. And God gets up out of his seat of din, of pure judgment, and because of the truah, he sits on his seat of rachamim, of mercy. And God converts his trait of din, of judgment, into a trait of mercy. Of Rachamim. According to this Medrash, the moment of the blowing of the shofar is really a moment of mercy, mercy of Rachamim. So, what's going on here? According to this so the secret that's been passed down to us, the judgment takes place in the moment of the blowing of the shofar. It's a moment of pure judgment. According to the Medrash, it's a moment of pure mercy. So what is it? <clears throat> By the way, as a side point, there's something else deeply wrong here. The Midrash doesn't make sense. Just as an aside. There are three character traits, so to speak, you have to be aware of to appreciate a problem with the Midrash. There's something called din, pure judgment. The opposite of din is chesed. Giving, loving, kindness. That's the opposite of pure judgment. Din can be described as I'm coming to collect. Chesed is the opposite. I'm coming to give. Mercy, rachamim, is something that happens when Din is trying to collect, judgment is trying to collect, and chesed, kindness, pays the debt. So that produces a third thing called mercy. But what's strange here is, the Midrash should say, God gets up out of his seat of pure judgment, and it should say it's, he sits on the opposite seat. He sits down on the seat of pure chesed, of pure kindness. Why did the Midrash jump down to this thing, mercy? It's an interesting side point, a problem. Okay. To review. Problem number one. Do we get judged as individuals or as a community? Problem number two. Is the moment of the blowing of the shofar pure judgment, like Yisrael Salantra and the Yaros Devash say? Or is it a moment of pure mercy, like 
the Medrash says. Question number three. The Gemara in Tractate Sanhedrin, page 37a, says the following. Hamabed nefesh echad Israel. God forbid, someone who kills a Jew. Kilumabed olam male. It's as if they destroyed the entire world. <coughs> now there's a lot of lessons buried in this line, but one lesson that's buried is, let's get outside of ourselves a little bit. We are so wrapped up in ourselves that we forget how important another person is. And we have to learn to look out at the other and realize that another person is a whole world. Altruism. The Gemara continues and says, Therefore, Chayev Adam Lomar, a person is obligated to say, Bishvili Barahaulam, the whole world was created for me. That's such a strange conclusion, right? The whole world was created for me. That sounds very selfish. So there's contradictory themes underlying these two phrases in a sentence. The first phrase that says, someone destroys a a single Jew, it's as if they destroyed the entire world. That means open your eyes, look at others, see the other people around you. Realize they're worthy, they're a whole world. And the second phrase, therefore, I should say the whole world was created for me? That sounds very selfish. Why do those two go together? Question number one, are we being judged as individuals or as a group? Question number two, the blowing of the shofar, is that a moment of judgment or mercy? Question number three, how can the Gemara on the one hand say a person is an olamali and I should be concerned about others and on the other hand say that I should say the whole world was created for me? With these three questions in mind, we will now start to walk forward. Move towards resolution. There's an astounding halacha in the Gemara and Brochos, page 58a. The Gemara there says that if you ever see 600,000 Jews standing together you can make a bracha, you can say a blessing. What is the blessing that we say? We say, Baruch Hacham Harazim. Blessed are you, God, the knower of secrets. Why when you see 600,000 people do you say, Blessed are you, the knower of secrets? Because only God could know what's subtly unique, the secret that's inside of every single person. There is no one like you on the planet, as Revolva says. There never has been. There never will be. You are totally unique. In Hebrew, pardon the pun, chad (coughs) pa'mi. Only God could understand how unique every single person is. And therefore, when we see 600,000 people and we know that they're all so different. We say, blessed are you, God, the knower of secrets, that you know that inside of each one of those 600,000 people there's something different. 
without going into a deep analysis of this particular bracha, one thing that we see clear is that God created you different from everybody else in this room. Now, the truth is, you know that. When you walked in, you knew you were different from everybody else here. You just thought that everybody else was the same. Yes? But you know that you're not like them. You know that you're different. Why did God make you different? So the reason is because God needed something done down here on earth, which nobody else could do. And he created you as a unique tool to come and fix that problem. That's why you're here, to make a unique contribution. We don't need you to be like the person next to you. Revolva once joked and said to me, Wait, why did God make you? He already had me. <laughs> and of course, the message he was sending was, Don't you see? You're not here to be like me. You're here to be different. Be yourself. More. There's a Medrash in Shmos Rabbah, 43, that suggests that in the deepest part of our personality, we are unlike anybody else who has ever lived. The Midrash says, it's talking about the creation of man. And it talks about how God made man. And then it says, When Adam Arishon was alive, but not yet human. This is before God breathed into him the human soul. He was a living creature. He was standing there. He was ready to go, but he was not yet human. God showed him a picture of every great human being that was going to descend from him. There were human beings who came from various parts of Adam's forehead. Some people descended from his eyes. There are some people who descended from his nose. The And there were some who came from his, from his mouth. Etc. Without revealing too much, what's clear from this is that we, that is, all of Klal Yisrael, at some point, all of mankind, are Adam Harishon. We are pieces of his neshama that were damaged in the original sin, and we are coming down to fix up the part that got broken. Some of us came from the part of his soul that's associated with his forehead. Some from the part of his soul that's associated with his nose. From all different parts of his head, people descended and came down. <coughs> Since I came from a different part of Adam Rishon than you did, so clearly I'm different from you. 
We all are different parts of his body, so to speak. I don't pretend to understand what this means. The only point that I'm trying to make is that you are by definition not like anybody else because you came from a different piece. More. The Gemara in Yavamos says that mankind cannot reach perfection without your peace. The Gemara in Yavamos, page 62a, reads, Ein ben David ba, the Mashiach cannot come. Achiachlu until all of the souls have descended from a place called Goof. Rashi on the spot says, Goof is the name of the Neshama storehouse up in the heavens that the Neshamas are sent down from. Between you and me, the reason it's called Goof is because they're coming down from Gufo Shil Adam Harishon. But that's... Irrelevant. Nevertheless, Mashiach can't come until all these souls have come down. Why is that? So the reason is because when God created the world, He created it with a certain crack, a break, something wrong that nobody ever in history could have fixed except for you. And therefore, until you come, and you make your repair. We can't experience Mashiach Kite. We can't experience a perfect world. It can't happen. Because the whole world is waiting for you to put in your puzzle piece. So now you realize that in fact there is no contradiction between the Mishnah that says that we're judged as individuals and the Gemara that says we're judged in one complete glance. You realize exactly what the Gemara and the Mishnah are speaking about. We're judged as individuals because God looks and says, Laib, have you given your peace? Have you made your unique contribution? How does he see whether or not I've made my contribution? He looks at the whole picture. It's like a jigsaw puzzle of the Mona Lisa. And if when he looks at the Mona Lisa... The smile's not there. It's because I blew it. It's because my piece hasn't been given. HaKadosh Baruch is waiting for you to contribute the Mona Lisa's smile. That's your job. Yes, he judges us as individuals. But Skira Achas in one picture. He looks at the world. It's still broken, Leib. That means you haven't given your picture yet. Or, Leib, I see her smile's in place. Good job. I was once sitting in a class with one of the Gdole Hador. There were five of us in this small group. And this particular Rav, this Gadol, was teaching us. And when he teaches, he often pauses during his presentation. And we were taking vigorous notes, all bent over, and he had paused, and we were waiting for him to start up again, and 
I didn't want to look up because I didn't want to miss the next words he was going to write. He was going to say so I could write it down. So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. And after a few moments, I look up and I see that the Rav is staring at the guy next to me. He's looking at So the guy next to me still has his head down. He doesn't see the Rav is staring at him. Yeah? I didn't want to say anything. Finally, right, the guy looks up and he sees that the Rav is staring at him. And he says, what's wrong? So the Rav, the Rav has payas. There's another guy in the group too who also had payas. The Rav brushes the side of his head and says, what's this? So the man sitting next to me looks at him and says, that's your payas. So the Rav says, no, 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 no. And he reaches across the table and he touches the side of this man's head and he says, what's this? The boy had started to grow payas. And, and, and this man sitting next to me said, uh, that's my payas, I'm starting to grow payas. So Rav says, well, why are you growing payas? There's nothing wrong with payas. The Rav had payas. Another guy in the group had payas. So the man said the one thing that you never say to a gutl, to a great Torah sage. He said, Stam! Cuz! So, the Rav looked at him and said, No. Not cuz. Not Stam. And he pointed to him and he said, You are trying to imitate him. And he pointed at the other guy in the group who had payas. And the Rav knew all of us very, very well. We had been together as a group for a long time. We'd been learning with for three years with the Rav. And... The Rav was right. We all admired very much this other guy and the Rav somehow picked up. That's why he was doing it. So he didn't say a word. The Rav said back to the boy, he said, um, it's forbidden to imitate another Jew. You should cut the payas. So the boy said, fine, I'll cut the payas. Right, you know, let's get back to work. <laughs> so we were all relieved the moment was over, right? I hunched over my book again. I'm ready to write. And I'm waiting, 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 and he's not talking. And I look up, and the Rav is staring at the guy next to me again. And he's just staring at him. So the guy next to me looks up, and he sees he's staring at me again. He says, what's wrong now? So the Rav looks at him, and the Rav brushes the side of his own head and says, what's this? And he brushes his payas again. So the man said, I told you, that's your payas. <laughs> so the Rav says, no, no, no. And he reaches out and he touches the side of this man's head again. And he says, no, no, what's this? This man looks at him and I said, I told you before, that's the payas I started to grow. So Rav looks at him and says, but I told you to cut them. So he says, yes, you told me to cut them. I'm going to cut them. And the Rav waved his finger and said, no. It's forbidden to imitate another Jew for even a moment. Go cut them now. And the boy went up and cut his payas. Now, having long payas is not a halachic requirement. It's something that we do as part of our style in Avodos Hashem. It's part of an expression of what we think Hashem wants of us personally. But it's not a halacha that you have to have the long side locks. When it comes to halacha, we imitate each other. I don't eat pig, my Rebbe doesn't eat pig, right? We don't eat pig, we all imitate. On Shabbos, none of us flip on lights. But when it comes 
to very personalized styles of what is Hashem, what is my unique identity in this world, what is my contribution, then we do not copy. We have to be whoever we are. And somehow the Rob detected this was not who the guy was. Of course, if that's who you are, there's nothing wrong with having payas. But if that's not who you are, you don't grow payas just because. My Rebbe said to me, it's like a walled city. And we're all guarding different portions of the wall. But if you're standing next to me, I get nervous. Because if you're guarding my post, who's guarding your post? We're all unique, we're all different. We all have unique contributions to make. Let's be ourselves and not try to copy somebody else. That's the judgment on Rosh Hashanah that I contribute my piece. We have a second question. Is the blowing of the show for a moment of pure judgment or a moment of pure mercy? So to answer the question, we have to look at a medrash brought by the Ron. Psikta that's brought by the Ron. The medrash reads as follows. On Rosh Hashanah, Adam Harishon was created. The first man was created. And then the medrash says how, how God did it. Wouldn't be interesting to find out how the first human being came to be. In the first hour, God contemplated the task. In the second hour, he consulted with the angels. In the third hour, he gathered the dust. In the fourth hour, he kneaded the dust into a dough. In the fifth hour, he shaped the dough. In the sixth hour, he made the shape into a golem, a living creature but not human. In the seventh hour, he blew a neshama into the golem. In the eighth hour, he brought man into the Garden of Eden. In the ninth hour, he commanded man not to eat of the tree. In the tenth hour, man ate. In the eleventh hour, man was judged. In the twelfth hour, man received amnesty. Hashem said to man, this event will be repeated just as you stood before me in judgment on this day and left with amnesty, so, in the future, your children will stand before me in judgment on this day and they will leave with amnesty. When? On the first day of the seventh month on Rosh Hashanah. Now this is a beautiful medrash unless you think about it carefully. When you think about it, amnesty? You know what the end of the story was? God killed him. He took him out of the Garden of Eden and destroyed him. He was put to death. Amnesty, where's the amnesty? And if God's trying to comfort me with this medrash telling me I can look forward to the same thing, I'm not sure I'm comforted. So to understand the Midrash, where is the amnesty? We have to see the difference between human judgment and punishment 
versus divine judgment and quote-unquote punishment. When a human court tries somebody and convicts them and finds them guilty, so they dole out some horrific punishment and ideally the purpose of the punishment is to take revenge against the person who did this terrible act and to dissuade anyone else from ever doing this again. That's usually how human judgment systems work. Yeah, you, right, you hurt somebody, we're going to put you in jail. You killed somebody, we're going to kill you. It's fair, it's revenge, we get even with you, and besides that, it will dissuade others from actually ever doing such an act again. When God involves himself in din, in judgment, he is not taking revenge. And he's not trying to scare other people away from doing the crime again. God's involved in something completely different. When God issues judgment, it's a diagnosis. He's saying, ah, oh, this is what's wrong with you. This is the damage you did. Let's fix it. The moment when Adam ate, he took the fruit, he looked at it, it looked beautiful. Adam's body was translucent. He glowed. The Midrash says his ankle was like the sun. And Adam took this fruit and he bit into it. And at that moment, there was a spiritual Chernobyl, a nuclear meltdown. Instantaneously, Zuoma, the spiritual radiation, blew out in all directions. Everything it hit was ruined. Adam's body instantaneously was destroyed. The translucent, glowing body turned into something that looks like this. Dirt. Not translucent, no glow. We became creatures that look like we currently look. We never looked this way. Autumn was standing there shaking. He was saying, my God, what did I do? Oh my God, what happened? And he's looking around at a world that's been destroyed. And God came running. Let me help you. What do you mean help me? Look what I did. I said, don't worry, we can deal with it. What do you mean we can deal with it? Zoom in every cell of my body. God says, okay, we'll get it out. How can you possibly get it out? God says, all right. We'll crack open every cell and let it escape. Adam says, I can't live through that. And I can't die because I'm in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, you can't die. God says, no problem. We'll get you on a stretcher. We'll take you out of the Garden of Eden. There you can die. That is... The body and the soul can separate. The soul will stay here for a minute. We'll put the body in the ground. Every cell of the body will crack open and release this zuama. And you'll be purified. You'll be clean. Removing him from the garden wasn't a punishment. It wasn't revenge. It wasn't to scare other people. It was the only way to make the repair. Another way of saying the exact same thing is when I do something that in God's guide to healthy living called the Torah He said don't do when I sin I cause damage I create a debt The goal is for me to undo the damage I did to myself. To pay 
off the debt, so to speak. <coughs> the Yaros Dvash and Registro Salanter are correct. The blowing of the shofar is a moment of pure din, of pure judgment that is, God comes to collect the debt. He's coming, He wants the soul fixed up, He doesn't want us to go through with the flaws of personality that we created by acting inappropriately. When we blow shofar, what are we doing? We're crying out to God. I want to pay the debt. Hashem, please let me pay it. I want to undo the damage. I don't want to walk around broken anymore. Please let me fix myself. The Medrash, Vayikar Rabbah says, the, the word shofar is from the word shipru masechem. I want to fix my actions. That's what the word shofar means. I'm crying out. Din, pure judgment, has come to collect, and I, chesed, am offering to pay. Please, Hashem, let me pay the debt. By the way, before we said, whenever chesed pays off din, there's a child born called rachamim. That's why the Midrash says God gets up off of his chair of din, of pure judgment, and sits on this chair of rachamim, not chesed, because when chesed pays din, the result is rachamim, pure mercy. In short, when I offer to pay the debt, through that offering, I create mercy. It's true, the moment of going to the chauffeur is naturally a moment of pure din. He's coming to collect. He's going to let us have it. He's going to fix us. But when I offer to pay, I transform that moment into a moment of pure mercy. And he says, oh, you're the kind of person who wants to fix yourself? You mean you're not afraid of a little pain? So then you don't need me to make life rough for you, right? You'll work hard on your own. Even if it's hard, you'll do the right thing. So mercy, I'm going to let it go. You'll fix yourself. It's only if the person says, no pain, anything but not pain, not sacrifice, don't make it hard. So then God says, listen, this kind of a person, they'll never fix themselves up. They're not willing to go through any pain. So I'm going to have to let them have it. I'm going to have to give them the prescription for their, for, for their repair. Because if I leave it to their device, they'll never fix themselves. Only when the person refuses to offer to pay, that's when God's got to collect. Okay, now, let's be very, very straight. There's not a lot of time left. None of us want to go through a process that hurts. We, are ter- we know God runs the world, and we are terrified what he could do if he decides to get rough. And so to start offering, you know, God, whatever it is, let me have it, because I just want to be fixed, that's very, very scary. I'll appeal that we should do such a thing for two reasons. Number one, 
People who try to avoid pain never become themselves. They never bring out their individuality. They remain forever these lazy people who only want to take it easy and avoid pain. So they remain forever generic bundles of humanness. But they never become unique, great people. Think of any person you've ever admired in life. They're all people who worked really hard, who suffered, who went through traumatic experiences on the way to their greatness. And that difficulty brought out their greatness. The people you meet who are basically like all the same, right? A lot of the reason they're that way is they just weren't willing to work to become themselves. So number one, if you want to be you, you got to go down this path It's going to hurt. Point number two, why it's worth doing this. If on Rosh Hashanah, the only thing in your head is, I sure hope God doesn't give me circumstances that are difficult. Even if that's what I need to grow, I'd rather not grow. I'd rather just take it easy. So let me ask you, is that why I came to this planet? I came here for the two cars in the garage and the, and, 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 and the, the, the home in the Poconos? That's why I came here? Didn't I come here to make it better? Didn't I come here to make a contribution? To relieve some pain? To be a hero? Why did I come to the planet? Back off, get some perspective. We're not here to enjoy this. It's not a vacation. We're here to make it better. Tikkun ha'olam, we're here to make a contribution. Wake up! I have to remind myself on Rosh Hashanah, yes, it's scary to go through pain. But the alternative is a wasted life. Practically, what am I recommending? On Rosh Hashanah, during the shofar blast, or when the shofar should be blowing, we have to work ourselves up to the point where we say, Hashem, I am scared. But if the only way for me to grow into who I need to grow into is through, God forbid, whatever it is, I'd rather have that than comfort. That has to be what our hearts are crying out as the shofar is blowing. Now don't say anything with your mouth. You don't ask bepeh. You don't ask explicitly for and the sign for difficulty. But in your heart, you want to be saying as the chauffeur's blasting, God, whatever it takes, give it to me. The result is, Hashem says, oh, Leib, you're the kind of guy who says, whatever it takes, give it to me. You'll fix yourself, I'll leave you alone. Now be careful. You can't fool him. You can't say, oh yeah, Hashem, uh, whatever it takes, give it to me, because I know you're going to let me off. That doesn't work. You have to really be in the mindset that whatever difficulties it takes, you're open. Because you so badly want to get fixed that you're even willing to go through difficulty. We'll just progress forth a little further and then we'll come to a conclusion. (coughs) 
There was an apparent contradiction in the Gemara and Sanhedrin. If someone destroys a single Jewish soul, it's as if he's destroyed the entire world. Concentrate on others. Therefore, a person should say, The whole world was created for me. In retrospect now, you see, there's no contradiction here at all. In fact, Rav Chaim Friedlander spells out this particular Gemara when it says, someone who destroys the entire world, and someone who destroys a single Jewish soul, it's as if he destroyed the entire world. It's not talking about killing somebody else. It's talking about me killing me. Because I was so afraid of pain. I was so afraid of being uncomfortable that I wouldn't take the proper steps forward. And what sort of rebuke can I give myself that will inspire me to take that uncomfortable step? I have to remind me. Remind myself. The whole world was created for me so that I could fix it. And if I don't fix it, the world will forever remain flawed. The whole world is waiting, Labe. Where are you? Some concluding thoughts, and then we'll take questions. Point number one. Torah is the only way to bring forth all the individuality that God pumped into human beings. God created human beings, He created Torah as the way to become you. To the extent that I'm distant from Torah, to that extent, part of me has not been realized. Often that looks like broken parts of personality. Two. Fear of pain will leave us generic, unrealized potential. We will end up being generic balls of greatness that never became great. Three, and this is most important. This is the most important point of the whole hour. And I'm only speaking to you now. I'm not speaking to the person sitting next to you. I promise you, you will not be alone during the blowing of the shofar. God is standing right next to you. And He is waiting for you to take His hand. And if you're scared, then just reach out and hold on to His hand. And he'll walk you through the whole thing. You don't have to worry. He loves you. He only wants you to make it. That's why he created Rosh Hashanah. So don't be afraid. Just grab hold and take the step forward. <coughs> May Hashem... Give us the courage, and I'm not using the word lightly. This is not figurative. May He give us the simple guts to take the appropriate step forward. 
to really be willing to be uncomfortable, maybe very uncomfortable, if that's what it takes for us to achieve our greatness. May God bless us this year with the proper attitude during the blowing of the shofar. And may that lead us to be inscribed and sealed for a year of life, of Torah, of love, of Avodos Hashem, a year of becoming everything that God wants us to be. Amen. Questions? <laughs> Grab it, son. For women who daven at home and who may hear shofar later on in the afternoon, what is considered the time of shofar blowing? Oh, so if you won't hear at the same time your husband's hearing, so then when you hear the shofar, that's fine. When I actually go to hear the show, for that's what you should be thinking. It's not like during Musaf or right, because that's when you're being Yotzi. That's the time. That's it. Yeah. No, because if they have the right attitude, if they'll just say, "I'm open to any sort of difficulty you give me, God," the result is they will get a sweet year. Islam, this is what everyone's saying. Islam, they've heard it. Yeah. Assume they've heard it and wish them a sweet year. Yeah, plus, your bracha that you're giving them, may you have a sweet year, it might push them towards some enlightenment and they'll realize this is what it's about and go for it. Yeah. So wish everyone a sweet, 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 sweet year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, then there's nothing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Right, you shouldn't ask. You're not allowed to ask. You should have in your heart... Like, depends what you mean we don't want. On the one hand, any normal person, like an animal, doesn't want pain. On the other hand... Up. No, no, not machaper. I want to. Be, I want to get fixed. And Hashem, I'm open to whatever you have in mind. In other words, look at the alternative. The alternative is to say, Hashem, even if the only way for me to get fixed is through difficulty, don't send it. You don't want to be in that mindset. You want to be in the exact opposite mindset, which is Hashem, whatever it takes. Because that's what we say to Pep. There's a, there's a, I'll explain. There's two brachas that a person says when they hear bad news. I'm sorry, one when they say they hear bad news, one when they hear good news. One that we say when we hear good news, right? Baruch HaTovah Meitiv. When we hear bad news, we say Baruch Dayan Emes. So, you and I know though, that everything bad that ever happens is really for the good. So why don't we say HaTovah Meitiv on everything? So my Rebbe said, because God doesn't expect us to be inhuman. And when you hear bad news, you're crushed. It's very difficult. It's more than you can expect of a human being to say, on tragic news. So the halacha takes into account, he's not going to ask you to do something, which there's no way you can do. To say, please hit me, is, is too much. But you can reach the state internally, not saying the pep, but you can reach the state internally of saying, Hashem, whatever it takes, 
even if it's hard, I just want to be what you want me to be. That you can do, and there you are required. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no? Okay. Yeah. So many people do know, and on Rosh Hashanah, that's part of what you're opening yourself up to. The question is, what happens if you don't know your peace? So say to Hashem, whatever it takes, I want to find out. Whatever it takes. Yeah. Sometimes people don't discover their peace until they've gone through difficulty. Say, Hashem, whatever it takes, I'm willing to. Yeah. Then you won't have to go through it. Yeah. Yeah. Do your best. How do you know if you're being honest when you say, I'm willing to take whatever, I'm willing to do whatever it takes? And the answer is, do your best. Be as honest as you can. There's no litmus test here. Yeah. I'm, I'm still not comfortable with the fact that the Rav said it's us to cry. And all of this we've discussed and being there and being in that mindset is very emotional. And for, for some of us who are very emotional, it's just constant. And it's not, it's, it's like seeing a wedding, which is a joyful occasion. You know, I don't know if the Jews of joy or tears of this will be tears of joy. Why? Because what you're saying is, I don't want to be away from you anymore. Take me home. Whatever it takes. Yeah? So those kind of tears don't get... So that, that's tears of joy. You're so happy that you're finally going to go home. Is that what's that? 